You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Born apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies and actors. Words. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Hey guys, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and we are very much in a period today where it's all about what can we learn and how can we learn something new and, and what new creative skills can we pick up. So my guest for today have figured out how to do medical education and combine it with animation. And I'm way too excited to, to have them break it down for you, give them the instructions and just give us all the good facts and everything, because this is going to be really cool for you guys. So my guests for today are um, Tepo Makai. And she is Dr. Tepo Makai. And she is joined with by her daughter, Cabello Makai. And they are going to talk to us about their animation studio down in Johannesburg, South Africa and called Cablo. And so I'm very excited to, first of all, that I made it through all those pronunciations because that was, I wanted to make sure I got it good for you guys. And then I'm very excited because this animation is just like a big love of mine. And the fact that these um, beautifully talented ladies have combined medical education with it is amazing. So first off, welcome ladies. How you doing? Thank you so much. Uh, we're good. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for having us. We're good. We're doing good. Woo. How did I do? How did I do, guys? That was a lot. Was I, I was like writing down pronunciations, everything. That was good. You can teach a few white uh, uh, South Africans how to pronounce it. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how, tell me, okay, first of all, mother and daughter working together. How is that fun? Is that, is it challenging? Like, tell us how that came together. Okay, I'm going to let the mother answer first. <laughs> Look, it was- oh, Okay, see, we, that's very smart, very smart. There you go. Dr. T, hook us up, let us know. <laughs> I enjoy working with my daughter because I can see her grow. I can see her progress. I can see her develop into a business person. It was not something that I had planned initially, uh, but when she wanted to start a studio, I thought because I had been involved in other medical businesses, I've ran, I've run a clinical practice in anesthesiology. I've run a medical tourism business. Mm -hmm. So I thought I could be able to come uh, Mm. and, uh, you know, work with her. And actually we complement each other very well because I'm a strategist and I can, I can look at a bed's eye view of the business and, uh, you know, work through what, what is required to run a business. And uh, so I've really enjoyed working with her and, and I'm still enjoying it. We're learning each other and we know our strengths. You know, and we complement each other with what we do. So, what do you think, daughter? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, in terms of the day to day, you know, I, Doctor T, would be the one who comes with the wisdom and the kind of vision for the team um, every week and every month. And I'm usually the technical person. So, if it's the actual technique of animating, or if it's you know all of the software and the online tools that we use. And just being a, that person who problem solves on the on the ground level day to day. That's kind of the role that I have. 
And it's, it's worked well for me to partner with my mom because it allows me to access um, certain opportunities and have that, um, you know, that wisdom when I, whenever I enter the room, you know. So if we're in a room and we're talking mm. to these, these people who, who own these, who work at these big pharmaceutical companies, um, she's there and she gives what I'm saying authenticity because she's much older. She understands the medical language. And then I don't know, it's mm-hmm. people take me a, a little bit more seriously because I'm there with someone who is not going to get taken advantage of maybe, you know, so that's, that's also a big, yeah. 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 You're going to have to, yeah. Everybody always looks for those extra facts to kind of, to kind of back it up a little bit. Um, but, um, Cabello, tell me about, uh, getting into animation because I should mention you are the animator the creative director tell me about getting to that like what was it about animation for you I mean I I always say that for whatever reason as a child I, I loved animation like most kids but for whatever reason I just didn't grow out of it and um, my mom and I every Friday we would hire DVDs when DVD rental was still a thing and my favorite part, I like, <laughs> I liked watching DVDs more than going to the cinema because my favorite part was the bonus features, the behind the scenes. So once we watched the movie, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I would like devour the behind the scenes and um, I'd watch, you know, the deleted scenes. I'd see them storyboard. And that's where I learned uh, how animation was made. And I remember maybe I was 11 years old. Um, we had hired the DVD for Finding Nemo and I saw how they made the water effect. And I was like, what? This is made by people? It's not magic? <laughs> and I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I was like... Oh, okay. you just ruined it for me. Thank you. You just ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I... I was like, okay, whatever this thing is, I want to do that. And then mm-hmm. that's when um, my mother and I started investigating what um, animation could be as a career and figuring out how to do it in South Africa because the circumstances are very different, you know, in our country. So, yeah, that's that's where that comes from. And if I may add, she started drawing really from the age of three, drawing in my medical books, <laughs> drawing uh, on oh, the Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, the walls in the house. I mean, we've got stack of paper that she has been drawing since uh, she was three years old. And the first official uh, portrait of her drawing, I think it's when mm-hmm. you were five. You know, so she's been doing this for a very long time, and and that is one of the portraits that I have hanging in my in my house to show then and now because you know that was a very interesting picture too. <laughs> <laughs> See, moms always know how to pick the right picture so they can pull it out at any moment. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Dr. T, tell us about Dr. T's nuggets, because um, I was I went on um, Cab Lau um, web uh, Instagram and I could see all the different videos you were doing for COVID-19, you know, very much what we're all dealing with right now. Yes. So how what is some of the what are some of the beginning things or you can kind of take it away if you want to, if you kind of haven't thought where you want to go, but just some of the beginning things that you started with and how you knew it was, um, you know, the right move to start making these videos. You know, the, when I first asked Cabello to make an animation content for me was when I was in theater, uh, working as an 
anesthesiologist and uh, patients not understanding what that is. And I said, I asked her to make a depiction of what an anesthesiologist does and why we need an anesthesiologist because any surgical procedure without that would be very painful. And then even before Mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19, I had said to her, you know, medicine and, and surgical processes are so complex. Uh, if we could use animation to just explain uh, and simplify medical concepts, it would work well for, for patients. It would also work well for medical students. So the idea of Dr. T's Nuggets was born from there. Also because I have, I, I have been throughout my medical career, which is 26 years now, been teaching, like been teaching people about how to take care of themselves. And I realized that animation is actually more impactful than just uh, talking to them about how to take care of themselves or how to take medication and so on. So Dr. T's Nuggets really is about Mm -hmm. simplifying uh, simple things like putting on a mask. I mean, I think uh, when there was uh, instructions or at least uh, regulations to put on masks and I was driving around, I could see I was so frustrated seeing how people don't wear their masks properly. And so one of the first Uh uh nuggets we did was how to put on a mask. Um, So we've done several Dr. T's nuggets. And the ones that are coming after now would be around the types of masks because there's different types of masks. So that's it's it's an educational tool to simplify complex things or everyday things that people take for granted. Uh, One of the things that we are not supposed to do is touch the mask, but people touch it all the time. And because they don't understand why they shouldn't. So using animation really simplifies uh, some of the things we want people to know. So I love Dr. T's Nuggets for that. And just to add on to that, animation makes Mm -hmm. the medical content less intimidating. It actually makes it easier to remember because you're looking at pictures, you're seeing characters, they're not getting huge jargon thrown at you. And it's also short. So it's not a lot of information mm-hmm. all at once. So that's why we, we're also doing Dr. T's Nuggets and why we use medical animation in general. Yeah, and I love and another thing I love about Dr. T's Nuggets too is um, what you guys are talking about, the impact and like just how seeing something visually can change just the whole way you think about something. And then the fact that COVID-19, um, a huge thing in, for, for Black people um, affecting them the most, and to be able to have um, you two ladies, two women of color, to be able to, to send the message in a certain way, I think, is a huge impact. Yes, and Dr. T, she's always, you know, on the team about, no, add some more Black characters. No, I want to see Black hair. I want to see Black faces. No, that skin is not dark enough. Mm-hmm. So she's always calling us out on <laughs> represent our people well. <laughs> See, I, but see, that's important though. I love that. That's important because if I'm just imagining, because I was going, like I said, I'm going through looking at Dr. T's nuggets. That has a different impact. Um, hearing Dr. T's, because that's your voice, right, Dr. T? And some of these going through these um, different videos and stuff in different shorts. Yes, 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 it is, yes, her it voice. is my voice. Right. So that to me has a different impact than I'm hearing somebody else, you know, white of another race that doesn't really understand, like somebody just trying to beat that into you like, hey, you guys got to do this and you got to do that. But it's somebody that understands what you're what you're going through and like the fact that it relates and it looks like you, I think is very yeah. important. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 
So tell me about, okay, um, let's go to three teaspoons of sugar. Um, a short you guys have about the trailer right now is on Vimeo where um, it, or it has the whole thing burly. So I guess you could, you could rent it, right? Yes. You guys want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, three teaspoons of sugar is our first uh, original short film that we made at Cablo Studios. And mm-hmm. um, it's the story of diabetes in our family. And what we did is we took three characters from our family. We um, interviewed two of them and the one uh, unfortunately passed away a long time ago. And um, we shared their story and their struggles with diabetes, you know, the the highs and the lows, uh, the lessons. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it actually ended up being selected um, at Annecy International Animation Festival. And for me, it was crazy because Dr. T was like, uh, actually before Dr. T, one of our our friends, um, who's also a animation director, she's from Ghana and she's based in England. She, her name is Comfort mm-hmm. Martha. She directed a project called Black Barbie. And she was like, you should make a short, you should make a short film. You should make a short film. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll make a short film, but I don't have any ideas. And she was like, we're not going to struggle. You're going to make a short film about your family. And then she ended up um, with diabetes as a topic. And in fact, mm-hmm. our family had gone through a lot of things um, with diabetes, you know, um, heart attacks and uh, dialysis and all that kind of stuff as a result of diabetes. So it really felt like it was important to to share how detrimental it can be and how it's truly um, preventable and share it in, in a way that's not like talking at people, mm-hmm. but it's actually taking them through mm-hmm. a story, seeing characters, hearing real people talk, and then seeing those real people in an animated form. Mm-hmm. So that's that's three teaspoons of sugar. Yeah. Uh, from my point of view, really, what I've seen is that doctors don't usually have time to explain things to patients. Um, if you mm, call a patient yeah. 15 minutes, really, there's only so much that you can do to teach patients about certain things. So three teaspoons of sugar is a way of educating people around diabetes, but based on real life stories. I have been over the years talking to my family members about you must eat right. You must exercise. You must do this. And I didn't think they had me. So three teaspoons of sugar. Once we premiered it last year, November, and people came and said, you know, it explained diabetes in a, for me, in a, you know, in a way that I could now change my behavior. And so I want to create animations that cre- that change people's behaviors. That's why we call our films films with the papers or movies with the papers, because three teaspoons of sugar is one of those where once you have watched it, it's 13 minutes long. Once you have watched it, you are able to say, oh, yeah, you know, this is how my heart would look. This is how my kidneys will be if I don't, you know, conform. But it's done in a, in a, in a you know, simplified, uh, yeah, in a say, charming, yeah, say charming uh, yeah. uh, uh, way using animation. So it's easy to understand. So it's, we're not using big terms like we would use as, as medical people when we talk to each other. So that's what I like about medical animation. Yeah, and and I, one thing I also really love about um, Three Teaspoons is my family was, they were like, what is animation, what? But um, it ended up being a way for me to preserve their story in a way that I didn't think I, I could with animation. So now when people watch this animation, they hear my actual grandmother's voice, my actual aunt's voice, my mom's voice. 
and you see them in animated form. And I don't know, there's just something really poignant about about that whole experience, you know, on top of it all. So yeah. Yeah. And that's another and that's another experience too, um, that you hear a lot when you go to doctors or in the black community. That's something you have to watch out that is passed down. Cause I know I have aunts and um, you know, grandmothers that had this that were dealing with diabetes, trying to manage diabetes. And to be able to see that it's, you know, it's broken down simpler where you can, you you know, you can figure out what your diet needs to be. You know, exercise is very important. So, Dr. T, what would you say is like a top, because I want people to go out and, and check it out. But what would you say would be like a top um, tip you would give everybody when it comes to diabetes? It Something just, that they'll pull, they'll pull from watching the short. It, it doesn't matter whether you have it in your family as a history, it, you know, in your family history, it is totally preventable. It's something that, because that's one mm-hmm. thing we are doing as a family, uh, uh, me and Cabello, is to make sure that we do not get diabetes. So it's totally preventable. Uh, on mm-hmm. uh, Also, it's manageable. Once, if you have it, you can also manage it with diet and exercise. So, And you can live a quality life even when you have diabetes. So there's two things to it. You can mm-hmm. prevent it and not get it, but once you have it, you can live a quality life and and prevent uh, complications from happening. Because the, the story of three teaspoons of sugar shows the complications of diabetes that has happened in my older sister and in my mother. You know, largely because they were very mm-hmm. difficult. You know, I think when, you're, when you are somebody's mother, it's very difficult. Uh, you know, my mother, uh, when I talk to her about disease, she listens with one ear. And then sometimes I feel like, oh, it goes out the other ear. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> three teaspoons really um, pushed the message forth for both my mother and my sister. So despite the fact that they have complications of diabetes, they can still live with it and now, um, you know, not suffer too much from the complications. So two, less, two messages would be it is totally preventable and you can still have a, a, mm-hmm. a good quality life if you have diabetes. Yeah. And uh, Cabela, what has been the feedback for you guys on this film? Because I, I think it's like I say, I um I keep saying I think it's amazing these topics that you guys have taken out, and like I said, to for the black community, for you guys to make sure everything is so technical and so intricate, so it reaches an impact, and you know, really for everybody to see. But it's very important, you know, representation and diversity. So what's what's some of the feedback you guys got, or with just like Cablo Studios in general? I mean, for three teaspoons of sugar, I remember when it was um, showing um, at the Annecy Animation Festival, um, a bunch of different people started Mm -hmm. sending um, messages and DMing us on Instagram and saying how they related to the film because their families were going through it. And this is like people who were like in India, which I didn't expect to even reach people in that part of the world. And um, oftentimes... Mm -hmm. The feedback that we also get is um, like a, a mentor of ours. His name is Isaac Mahajane. He's done some stuff for Netflix and all of that. And he said he didn't expect mm-hmm. the film to be emotional and heartfelt because it's it's a medical project. He, so I guess he was expecting for it to be kind of cold and fact-based. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, no, it, it, the film took <laughs> him on a journey and um, it was relatable, you know. And I mean, the feedback in general from black people um, about Cablo Studios and actually just in general from South Africans, because South Africa is quite a diverse country. 
when we're in boardrooms mm-hmm. and we show them, um, you know, like concept art for a project that we're working on, they'll say, oh, it's so refreshing to see black avatars instead <laughs> of, you know, just generic cartoon characters that we don't, that are, you know, they're usually white that we, and not to say mm, that yeah. we shouldn't have cartoons, but we see so few of other people represented in this space. So mm-hmm, that's also mm-hmm. some feedback that, that we get uh, as, a, as a studio and, and on the film. Yeah. And I think for me, just to have a, a black doctor there, uh, so that our young mm. kids can see that it is possible, you know, for a, a young yeah. girl to become a doctor, for a young girl to actually be de- depicted as a cartoon character, such as Dr. T. So uh, mm-hmm. that for me is is um, a happy moment because where we are right now, especially in the States and in South Africa, you know, we we the, the, the topic of, of blackness or, or uh, the issue of blackness is topical at this time. So uh, if we can use characters such as those that are in three teaspoons to show our black kids that they can be somebody that looks like you uh, uh, in an animated form, I think we would have done a great job. Yeah, somebody who looks like you in an animated form and somebody who looks like you making those animations as well. Yeah. Yeah. And how, Um. so what... Um. I'm trying to think of because it's interesting you bring up the animation in um, South Africa, animated um, community in South Africa. What has that been like for you guys baking through that? I know you gave us like a little bit, but what has that been as far as like getting out to the festivals, Um, you know, letting people know, like you said, there's somebody um, creating the animations as well. That's black. There's somebody talking to you. That's, um, you know, that's black. What has that been like for you guys breaking that barrier or continuing to to work your way through that? Um, so the, the South African animation uh, industry is, it's small, but it's growing and it's very tight knit. Mm-hmm. So once you know the people, then you know the people and you're, you're kind of in the circle, I guess. But um, in terms mm-hmm. of you know, pushing the film and getting it out there, um, like for example, uh, there's this Facebook group that I'm a part of. It's called the South African Animation Facebook group. And there's like 8,000 members. That was one of the ways that I mm-hmm. would get um, uh, fellow South Africans to be aware of the of the film, and then in general, just interacting um, as a, as a you know as an industry. Uh, I'm finding with Cablo Studios that the rest of the community is embracing of us because we're entering the industry in a unique way. Mm-hmm. You know, we we. Um, most people want to make actually in South Africa, it's a very service heavy industry. So most people are making adverts and uh, short films for other people or working as an outsource studio for international clients. Um, but mm, for okay. us, we decided to, you know, serve the medical community. So we're, we're kind of the only ones in that space. And then on the side, mm-hmm. as we as we kind of earn our income um, from the medical uh, projects, we st- we start to make original projects that aren't necessarily medical. Like for example, our our um, animated series called The Fam. It's an animated reality TV series that we are developing, and um, we found because we're we're this unusual studio, people want to talk to us and. And give us, they give us good feedback and, you know, they're embracing of us. So it's, it's a community that that's embracing. Yeah. And I just wanted to say that last year, the very first 
a festival that we attended, uh, the Cape Town International uh, Animation Festival. Mm. I was the only doctor amongst all the animators, so I was the <laughs> odd one out. Uh, but it was, <laughs> we were talking about what is medical animation, and I'm used to being the odd one out, you know, generally. So the way that we we as a studio have approached uh, animation is that we will we'll do medical animation. So we, we enter the market through medical animation and we're doing unique um, uh, animated content, films with a purpose, mm-hmm. uh, animated content with black characters. And, um, and then, of course, now the femme, which is going to be something also unique. So the people are watching us. You know, I had somebody at the same festival saying, you must watch this girl. They were talking about um, Gabelo, this, you must watch her. So... I think they're watching us um, and also other black animators are reaching out to us, you know, wanting to work with us and wanting to find out how to be, you know, um, be involved with animation. Yeah, a lot of people send DMs, you know, asking for advice, you know, what tools to use, how do they enter, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so it seems like we are a trailblazer in uh, a lot of things. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will return in just a moment. The Salon with Lala Milan is a new podcast that I think you are going to love. You might already know Lala from her viral videos on Instagram and TikTok and her infamous parodies on YouTube. And if you have not seen her content, stop the podcast right now. Go to her TikTok, go to her YouTube, go to her Instagram, check the videos out. They are hilarious. They are funny. She is so entertaining. You know, she's not only this hilarious actress and comedian, she's also an expert on giving beauty tutorials and fashion tips, and her and her squad are known for unfiltered conversations and savage pop culture gossip. I mean, it's just like at the beauty salon, right? Her podcast, The Salon, is all that and more. Lala and her guests will talk about sex, relationships, situationships. We've all been there. And they covered the latest trends in beauty, juicy celeb gossip, and everything in between. Just like at the salon. So metaphorically, you're having the real beauty salon experience. Whether you're getting your hair done, you're getting your nails done. This is a COVID-free experience of listening to gossip while having that sort of beauty experience and listening to these great beauty tips while listening to some juicy celeb gossip and hearing all of the tea. Listening to Lala gives us all the laughter and advice that we need right now. And trust me, we all need a little bit of laughter in our lives right now. And nothing is off limits at the salon. So this is something that I know I need in my life. Check out the salon with Lala Milan right now in Stitcher, Apple, or your favorite podcast app and make sure to subscribe y'all yeah i mean i i would say i agree and cabela knows how to listen to her mom and dr t you giving us a nugget so i'm saying you guys are are winning combination a winning combination and you definitely have us looking you have us listening and this is really cool this is really cool guys um thank you thank but you. before we sign off though oh say, say it one more time oh i said thank you <laughs> oh okay um, but I want to, I want you guys to give like your, tell us where they can keep up with any more information, um, more medical facts, um, you know, give us your Instagram page. Where can they keep track of you guys? So, um, if, 
if people want to watch Three Teaspoons of Sugar, it's available to rent um, or buy on Vimeo On Demand. You can just search Three Teaspoons of Sugar and you'll be able to find it uh, as well as some behind the scenes of how we made the short film. If they want to you know, follow Keblo Studios and see Dr. T's Nuggets, then they can follow us on Instagram. It's Keblo Studios and Keblo is spelled C-A double B L O W. And then if you want to follow me personally, then my Instagram handle is just Cablo. Oh wait, no, my Instagram is Cablo. (laughs) 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 See, it's tricky. See social media, this thing, it has us thinking like we got to double think now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn as Dr. Tepo Maka. Dr. Tsepo Maka, T-S-H-E-P-O, Maka, M-A-A-K-A. So I'm, I'm on both Instagram and LinkedIn in the same name. Uh, see, there you go. You guys, they're giving you all the information where you can track them down, where you can watch these beautiful shorts. And I want to thank you guys so much for talking with me today. This has been so informative. And, you know, it's just, it's just cool to talk about animation in different forms. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much for having us. It has been uh, an interesting uh, conversation with you. And it was fun. <laughs> I know. It was fun. So you got to keep it fun. This this time we need light and fun. And I mean, I feel like that's you That's you guys' whole like mantra like that for me, for me checking out these videos. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's serious content, but it doesn't have to be heavy, you know? Yeah. So that's where we're coming yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and we definitely need that these days. Yeah, to keep to get the information out and then not be so you feel so weighted down by everything you're getting. So I think it's fantastic. Mm. All right, guys. So remember to check this video. Remember to wear your face mask properly, like Dr. T told you. And everybody stay safe. And I will talk to you guys later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Uh, this is Deandra for the Black Girl Nerds podcast, and it is my extreme pleasure to speak with New York Times bestselling author Nick Stone. Today, we are going to talk about this very moving story that she has written called Dear Justice. It touches upon a multitude of issues that affect our young Black youth, and we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss that book today. Thank you so much for joining me, Nick. How are you doing today? You know what? It is a pleasure to be joining you. I so rarely have the opportunity to speak with other Black women. So this is extremely exciting for me. Thank you. The pleasure is entirely mine. I had the opportunity to really dive deep into the book and I read it in its, in its entirety and it moved me on a number of, of re, uh, for a number of reasons on a multitude of issues and just the styling alone was so clever and unique and so different from anything I've ever read before. But starting off, um, Dear Justice, when what motivated you to tell this story and tell me about the, the origin of putting this story together? Yeah, sure. So, so Dear Justice is actually... It's not a sequel in the sense of like a typical sequel where you're following the same main character through, you know, whatever happens after an initial book. Um, But it is, 
a follow-up to another book called Dear Martin. So Dear Martin came out in 2017, and it's about an African-American boy who's very different from Quan. Basically, they start in a similar place but wind up taking different paths. And I wound up writing Dear Justice at the request of a, of a couple of Black boys who had read Dear Martin and who loved Dear Martin but who were unable to really see themselves in the main character of that book. Um, Justice is the main character of Dear Martin, and he is a kid who is high achieving, um, academically inclined. He's headed to Yale, and he goes to this very elite, um, predominantly white preparatory school. Uh, and in Dear Justice, we are following a different kid who we meet in Dear Martin, and this kid the, the main character of Dear Justice, his name is Quan. Quan is a kid that grew up with Justice until Justice went off to this other school. But we see in this book that they take these very different paths. And so these kids, um, I call them D and Z. There's, a, there's a, an opening letter in Dear Justice where there's a set of text messages that I received from D and Z where they were basically asking me to write another book where I was telling their story um, as kids who aren't always doing well in school, who sometimes are just doing their best to stay out of trouble and who have family members who are locked up, who are dealing with a lot of other issues that justice didn't have to face. So this book is a tribute to them. And, and Z. It, shout out to DNZ for stoking this, this fire in you for this story. I mean, it was, so relatable. It's based in Georgia, but I'm here in Inglewood, California. I am very familiar with similar type of stories, how that's affected my own family. I've had young men in my own family who have experienced similar things that Quan experiences during the course of the book. So it, it, it touched me greatly uh, by examining, you know, the effects of home, broken homes, abusive homes, uh, the misallocation of of justice of not the character justice but you know the term justice and mm -hmm. and how two young men from the same place could have a totally different light trajectory based on something that happens in an instant. Beginning with um, justice, justice's early or not justice's Quan's early years growing up and had a father in the in the picture but ultimately the father is incarcerated and that changes his whole his whole life in, a, in, in an instant as a as a young man when you're telling a story like this where do you how did you draw upon the pain and the misery that a young man like Quan feels when he sees his father taken away from him and the effects that that separation has on him in his life. I mean, I'm real big on going to the source. Um, in order to write this book, I did a lot of very in-depth interacting with kids who are in detention, with kids who have a parent in, in, who is incarcerated. Um, and it was important to me to make sure that they felt like I was listening to them, even in just the interviews, because it's only through listening can we then really get into what somebody else is feeling. Like you can't really empathize with another person if you're not taking the time to listen to them. So it always, for me, starts with listening. Every story I write starts with listening. Um, I had the 
privilege of getting to spend some time with the founder of an organization called Children of Promise in New York. And this organization is, they are just focused solely on the kids of incarcerated parents. They have mental health services. There's an after school facility where these kids can come in and get tutoring. Um, and it's one of these kind of manifestations of the, of the idea that it takes a village, right? So I get to go in there, I get to hang out with the founder and I get to talk to her about some of the things that she's witnessed with the kids that she interacts with. And I got to talk to some of the kids as well. So it's just in collecting information and stories from other people um, that I really get to that emotional core of a thing. You know, I think we all understand what it means to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. in some way or another. So being able to latch on to the feeling of disappointment, to the feelings of fear, to the feeling of, of panic, like those are things that all of us experience at some point or another. So as long as I can touch on that within myself, it makes me able to connect with other people who have experiences that are different from mine. With those experiences and uh, Quan's travels and his interaction with Justice, what I particularly enjoyed in looking at the book, physically looking at the, the book, employing the different styles that the book appears in, the, the letter formation. Uh, some of it, it's like reading a, a, a script as they are feeling outside of themselves, watching something play out. What made you employ that technique within your story? So I like to play with form. Um, Dear Justice is my sixth novel. And it, it like every book that I've written has some kind of like form play in it. This follows a similar form as Dear Martin, the book that came before it. And part of the reason I wrote these books this way is because my goal is to engage the kids who don't think they like to read, right? Mm -hmm. I find that when I go into schools and I interact with young people these days, especially young black and brown people, because they are so used to never seeing themselves on the page, a lot of them have no interest in reading. And that's the thing that makes perfect sense to me. Like I remember being in ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grades and having these assigned reading books where if I was in it or if there was somebody in it that looked like me, the person was either some kind of escaped slave or some kind of idiot on the page. It was nobody's life, that there was no life of a black literary character that I was told I had to read when I was in high school that I wanted to imitate. I didn't wanna be Tom Robinson from To Kill a Mockingbird. He had a terrible fate, right? I didn't wanna be Jim from Huck Finn. So that completely turned me off from reading. And I think when it comes to getting a person who doesn't like to read to realize that, hey, maybe I do like to read, I just haven't found the right thing, I try to engage what they are used to. And my, my model for books like Dear Martin and Dear Justice is Instagram, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so the way that Instagram functions, we are scrolling, which means there is a barrage of stimuli coming in through the eyes. And we're taking in information. We are synthesizing it. We're skimming and reading captions. So there's reading comprehension involved, but it's the change in what you're seeing that keeps the brain engaged in Instagram. So with these books, what I try to do is change what the reader is seeing every few pages so that they stay engaged in the story. So there's even parts of the book that are in prose, but the prose takes shape on the page, right? Like there are parts where the prose is written in kind of this broken down verse type thing. And there's an arrow that forms on the page because there's something about being visually stimulated for kids who have grown up in this age of technology that keeps them locked in 
to whatever it is that they're doing. Um, so it's really just a big marketing trick. If I'm being, <laughs> I'm being honest, I love, I love, you know, I really love that. Now to hear you explaining the methodology of it, that was what was most appealing about act, the physical act of reading it because by reading it in those different, it really brought it to life to me. You know, I could start to really visualize these young kids, the spaceship, uh, how it felt to be incarcerated, them just visualizing them writing letters to each other and how their Justice and Quan's life trajectories were so different, but I could, I could see them. And I could put those instances, I could put a face and think of my own family or friends or people I grew up with. And I could truly, truly see these young characters leaping out from your writing. So thank you for that. I thought that was brilliant. It was so different from anything I've seen before. Very, very clever. I appreciate that. I mean, it's always nice to know that like what you're doing is doing what it's supposed to. So thank you for letting me know that I should continue on in this trajectory because it's, it's working. I loved it. You know, it gave me, I could see like a total, like a series, a limited series. Like I could totally see that in real life. You know, we got to speak things into existence. Sister. Look, I'm with it. I am with it all about it. If anybody wants to like jump on it, holler at me. Mm-hmm. What is, you know, in the reading the story, an unfortunate truth about our young black and brown children is they're forced to, to grow up so young and to learn things so young, so much faster than their, their white counterparts. You know, uh, Quan speaks to recognizing how, how penalties are, are allocated differently to, to white children that are incarcerated with him. And even uh, Justice speaks to it when they, well, when he becomes involved with uh, Quan's insurrections i guess we'll call them mm-hmm. um it, will there ever be a time or are we moving in a direction where people will not see our young black and brown children as adults or over sexualized over aggressive or all of those things that they attribute to young black and brown children i mean i sure hope so like i think we're beginning to have terms for these things. Like there's a sociological term called adultification bias. And like this adultification bias, it's a form of racial prejudice. And you have these children, these black and brown children who are seen as adults before they actually have a chance to grow up. Um, And having a word for it, I find that having a word for a thing makes people perk up a little bit, right? Like we are in a society that number one is obsessed with being right. Like we really struggle in America. And I say this as a person who has lived abroad in America, we really struggle with being wrong about things with not appearing like we know everything. Um, The idea of uncertainty is like anathema to our being as Americans, right? So getting to a place where we have the words to attach to these problems is a really good thing. And so, Anybody listening, just look up the word adultification bias and, and learn some things about where it comes from, why it functions the way that it does. And I think that knowledge is the way that we are going to hopefully move forward. I think it's a combination of knowledge and compassion, right? So part of the reason I wrote Dear Justice is because I really wanted to stimulate um, and engender some compassion and some empathy for a sector of the population that is often cast aside or forgotten about or, or dehumanized um, in a lot of ways. And that's, that's incarcerated youth. Um, people find out that a kid has been locked up and it's like they instantly 
have an opinion about that kid and about what that kid is like and about whether or not that kid is quote unquote trouble. Mm. Um, and I think that taking the time to look at the lives of these kids and how they ended up in the place that they are will take us a long way in beginning to see them again as children. So taking the knowledge and then like sprinkling a whole bunch of compassion on it and, and learning how to empathize, I think is the way that we move forward. And it is my hope that we are going to come to a point where we're no longer looking at like a 12 year old black girl and calling her grown. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It starts from so young. I think of being a child myself or my own daughter. I have a 16 year old daughter. And when we see kids do little funny things or things normal kids do, they dance. And when they're very small and, you know, we automatically I've caught myself saying that when she was like, stop acting so grown, stop mm -hmm. acting so grown. But now we look at social media and we see all sorts of kids dancing and no one automatically thinks, oh, this other little girl, she's too grown, take that down. Is it a, are we as a society just being desensitized to what we think is quote unquote grown or do, are we finally seeing a shift in that the adultification of black and brown children is starting to lessen because I don't see the same labels placed on their white counterparts when they're dancing on TikTok and doing all the same things. Right, right. And I mean, that's the, that's the bias piece of it is that like the adultification is only applied to people of color. So I will say though, that I do think there's a shift happening. And I think that shift actually has more to do with um, <sighs> feminism in a way. And like this idea that a lot of the things we think about as like moral guiding moral guideposts if you will are rooted in stuff that's kind of misogynistic mm -hmm. um and and there's a lot of misogyny there's a lot of patriarchy there's a lot of like there are a lot of these structures and these institutions that are very old and very deeply rooted in the soils of this country that people are starting to question um so when it comes to what a person is doing. Like I, I've, I actually have even done some work and some research on kind of desexualizing the female form, right? And like letting a woman's body be a body and it not like, it's like anti-objectification stuff, right? So like there are all of these things happening and moving and shifting. And I think at the core, it's just people becoming more aware of what it means to be human and how that humanity, um, applies to everyone, but the different body that you live in means that you experience it differently. And as we become more and more aware of how the bodies we occupy affect the way we get to move through the spaces we occupy, I think that we'll get to a point where we are more welcoming and we're kinder and we, we recognize that like not everybody has the same experience. And like, just because you are doing just because you're doing like the WAP challenge doesn't mean you're a hoe, right? Like there, there are so many labels that we, we stick on people just because they're doing something that we think is, is morally wrong or something. But there's a quote, um, one of my favorite books of all time is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And there's a quote in there from a character named Lord Henry. And he says, we are not put into the world to air our moral prejudices. And it's something that I read when I was in my mid twenties that really stuck with me. Um, the less time we spend judging other people based on these kind of like ethereal and nondescript ideas of what's right and wrong, 
the more time and space we'll have to just enjoy each other's humanity, no matter what kind of body you occupy, whether it's black, brown, male, female, non-binary, et cetera. Like we, I just want everybody to like enjoy being human and we're getting there. I am a, a internal optimist and I do think that we're going to get there. I love that. I'm also an internal optimist because there's so much we need, we need as much optimism as we can get because there's so many things out there threatening or trying to steal that joy and optimism from us. So I wish to be part of the, the positive side of the scale like you. Yeah. Uh, stepping aside from, from Dear Justice, just as Nick Stone, the author, and your journey uh, to becoming a New York Times bestselling author, what are some life lessons you would impart upon young people who have that voice inside them yearning to jump out on paper and want to pursue the literary path as you have, what type of advice would you offer them about their journey? Um, my biggest piece of advice is going to be find your center, right? This is an industry, the publishing industry, and honestly, obviously the world at large, but like the way that people who create things for other people to consume, whether it's like creative things. So art, music, podcasts, um, books, films, when we are making things for other people to consume, it can be really easy to get too wrapped up in how the people who are consuming it feel about the thing that you're creating, which then can get convoluted and you make it seem like they feel that way about you. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it has always been vital to separate myself from my work, right? You can hate something I write, but I don't take that as you hating me. Right. And if you hate me, cool. There's a good chance you don't actually know me because I'm a pretty hard person to hate. Like I know that, right? Like I know based on how I move through the world, based on how I treat other people, based on my priorities. Like if you're a person who hates me, I certainly didn't do anything. There's a good chance that I didn't actually do anything to deserve that. Right? So knowing that I am not my work, what I create is what I create and who I am is who I am. That's the biggest piece of advice I can give is get yourself to a place where you are able to separate from what you create and your, your sense of worth is not locked into that. Um, and then the second piece of advice is to just like, just do it, right? I, I interact with a lot of young writers who are nervous about not getting it right or it being quote unquote bad. But like, if anybody were to read a first draft of mine, I think they would be like, how is this chick a New York Times bestseller, right? Like there's so much that goes into writing a book. There's editing, there are multiple rounds of editing, there's copy editing, there's proofreading. Like books don't come out as fully formed objects. No story has ever been told that didn't need to be revised in some way, shape or form. Um, so giving yourself the space to write that first draft that just probably isn't very good I think is another really important thing that aspiring writers can do for themselves, like kicking perfectionism to the curb and realizing that there really is no such thing as a finished story. It's just abandoned at some point. Like I could go back into Dear Justice now and find 500 things that I could change, but I won't do that because the story, it landed where it needed to and you walk away from it. So the idea of perfect is not true. Separate yourself from your work and just sit down and give it a shot. That's awesome. That's inspiring to me. I'm not 
the most, you know, I call myself maybe about a B minus in the writing department, <laughs> but that gives me some hope too that, you know, maybe I, one day I might have that burning desire to pin something in just hearing the perspective that there is no finish, things can be changed, et cetera. Those are kind of those hidden things that people don't tell you about book writing when you, you look at it as sort of a goal. So I never yeah. even considered that. That's dope. Thank you. So the book will be out on September 29th. And right now you're doing a pre-order campaign for our listeners who want to get involved in pre-order. What is the best method to connect with you so they can get their copy of Dear Justice? So I am on Instagram at get at no, what am I on Instagram as I'm on Twitter at get nicked G E T N I C C E D. And then Instagram at Nick stone N I C S T O N E Instagram is where I do most of my, like anything um, just cause I like it better than Twitter, but you can find all kinds of information there. And then with this, this pre-order giveaway, we've actually extended it. So now we're extending it through, mid-October. So basically what happens is if you order a copy of Dear Justice and you submit that receipt to justicechallenge.com, there's a form that you fill out and you submit your receipt, a matching copy will be donated to an organization called the Prisoner's Literature Project. And what the Prisoner's Literature Project does is they take books and they distribute them to incarcerated people across the country. So it's basically like you're buying a book for yourself or for a loved one, and you're also giving one to somebody who's locked up and who could use kind of that hope and that, that view of what's possible outside. Um, and yeah, that'll go through, I think, October 15th, I think. But yeah, sometime in mid-October. I, I absolutely love that. I, I, yeah. that. That is fabulous. That is really fabulous because when it's so easy to write off our our folks when they are locked up and forget about them and hope is is stripped away from them especially people who are incarcerated for nonviolent offenses or uh-huh. penalized more severely than others for stealing a deck of cards or uh-huh. minor in in indiscretion so again that is wonderful Nick, you are so lovely, and I have enjoyed speaking with you greatly. I super enjoyed the book. Now I have to go back and read Dear Martin, but it was just an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, and I encourage all of our listeners and our readers at the Black Girl Nerds website to pick up this book, not only for yourself so that other, another person can benefit from it, or buy one and gift one. The holiday season is coming. It's a fabulous read. It's very, very relatable, and it's an easy read, too. I killed it in one day. Aw, thanks. That was super dope. Well, I thank you for your time. A pleasure. Blessings to you, and, you know, we'll probably speak again after the next book or the screenplay. Look, I'm into that, too. Come through. Manifest. Amen. Thank you so much, Nick. Have a wonderful day, and I know we'll be speaking together soon. Thanks. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.